so many things happen behind the scenes, things we're not always aware of, and it's just awesome to see how people come together, how they volunteer, how they work so hard, uh, how lives are being changed because of this. I praise God for that. This is one of my favorite times of year. I, I really, I love Christmas. I love everything about it. One of the things I really enjoy is, is the songs that we do, the Christmas carols. I love those. I start listening to Christmas carols sometime around June 1st. And, uh, and I, I just love them so much, so I, I listen to them all the time. It's also a great time because it allows us to begin to focus on designations. Uh, we're, we're focusing on God, uh, the, the, his son Jesus Christ, and, and also names. Uh, many of the names that come up through Scripture are, are at the forefront of what we're doing here today. Uh, the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end, the first and the last. Bread of life, living water, cornerstone. Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer, Healer, Deliverer, the Bright and Morning Star, Brother, Abba Father, Second Adam, Friend, Ultimate Sacrifice, Holy One, Righteous Judge, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Son of David, Son of Man, Son of God, Adonai, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, the Great I Am, Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's a little tough to understand, isn't it? That's kind of a hard concept to be able to, to internalize, to, to wrap our head around. How, how is it possible that God can be with us? It's, sometimes it's really difficult to understand, but there are a lot of things I have trouble understanding at times. You probably do too. I mean, I have a really hard time understanding how a woman can take hot boiling wax put it on her upper lip, pull the hair out by the root, and still be afraid of a spider. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how a teenager can, can text a thousand words a minute, overcome any uh, video game, and program a computer, and still can't judge the distance between a dirty clothes hamper and the floor. I don't know how that's, how that's possible. I don't understand guys. I mean, I'm, I'm a guy as well, but I don't understand how a guy is able to remember the stats of NBA players who won the 1998 World Series, remembers the, the coefficient drop rate of a 22-250, and, uh, and, and knows the horsepower of every vehicle ever made, and still can't remember his wife's birthday. That happens. Life is filled with the imponderables. But seriously, God with us, Christ with us. I mean, this isn't the Garden of Eden where God walks with us and talks with us like he did with Adam and Eve. I mean, we don't live in the age of a burning bush where God came down as he spoke with Moses. He'll speak to us out of a burning bush. This is not those times when, when we wrestle with God like Jacob did and, and God touched his hip and knocked his, his hip out of socket. It, this is not those days when we would stand in a fiery furnace like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did and, and the person, the, the spirit, the son of God was there speaking with him. This is not those days you know, following, following the writing of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, God was silent for 400 years. That, that doesn't mean he wasn't working. He certainly was. But so far as having a revelation to his people, God didn't say anything for about a 400-year period. And then he broke that silence by sending the angel Gabriel to Zechariah the priest, telling him that you and your wife would have a child in your old age and you would call him John and later he would be known as John the baptizer and that same angel Gabriel came to this this young lady Mary and and told her that that uh, even though you weren't fully married 
still you would conceive and that you would give birth to a son and you would call him Jesus and he would save mankind from their sins. Now, I believe these stories are true. I believe that God did walk with Adam and Eve in the garden and spoke with them and they conversed. I, I believe that, that uh, God did speak to Moses from a burning bush and that he wrestled with Jacob. And I believe that, that the Son of God stood in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I, I believe these stories are true. I believe that God appeared uh, as, as the angel to Zechariah and also to, uh, uh, to Mary. I, I believe those things are true. But is God truly with us in 2022? Emmanuel, God with us. Is he here with us in 2022? You see, 730 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah the prophet had prophesied about the coming of Emmanuel. But we need to do a little background research here because when you read this section of Scripture out of Isaiah chapter 7 and you read that text that talks about Emmanuel, God with us, in the context of what's going on, it's kind of confusing. It doesn't make a lot of sense. This was a time when when God's people were at war with one another. Israel was at war with Judah. The kingdom had been split in two. And so Syria had gotten together with Israel, and they were waging war against Judah, and King Ahaz was their king. And if the truth be known, Syria and Israel wanted King Ahaz and Judah to partner with them so that all three kingdoms could go to war against Assyria. Now, when King Ahaz saw that he was being waged war against by these other two, he became very, very frightened. And so God sends Isaiah the prophet to Ahaz to kind of reassure him that everything's going to be okay. And so you pick up in, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10, where it says, Later, the Lord sent this message to King Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as the heavens or as deep as the place of the dead. In other words, God was saying, trust me. Trust me and, and ask for any sign, anything that you want, and I'll show you that I'm going to be with you through these days of, of battle and hardship. But it says in, in verse 12, the king refused. No, no, he said, I will not test the Lord like that. Wow, that sounds like real humility, doesn't it? But it's not. It's actually arrogance. Ahaz had already planned to go to the king of Assyria and to join with him so those two kingdoms could fight Syria and Israel. That was his plan from the beginning. We pick up the text where it says, Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. He's, there's a lot of, of anger in that statement. There's an exclamation mark there. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you now exhaust the patience of God as well? All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Isaiah says, I can see your heart. I can see your false piety. You don't want a sign? Too bad. God's going to give you one anyway. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Now, here's the kind of confusing part. By the time this child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he'll be eating yogurt and honey. For before the child is that old, the lands of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. Now, now wait a minute. This, <laughs> the timeline is kind of messed up here, isn't it? It's a little confusing. How can this be a prophecy about Jesus Christ when it says here that these two kingdoms will be overcome in just a few years and Jesus wasn't going to be born for another 700 years beyond that? Yeah, I agree. It's a, it's a little confusing. So before we get too deep in the weeds, 
I think a likely interpretation is really pretty simple. It's a twofold interpretation, a twofold prophecy. One, Isaiah is saying, in your lifetime, Ahaz, there will be, as a matter of fact, soon there will be a young woman, a virgin, a, a maiden, who will give birth to a son. She'll name him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And before that child is old enough, uh, or before that child gets too old, these two kingdoms that you're afraid of will be done away with. But, Isaiah says, I want you to look to the future, 700 years down the road, when there will be a young virgin by the name of Mary who will conceive and give birth to a son, she, and she will call him Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. So this first birth is simply a foreshadowing of something to come. It is a foreshadow of something much greater down the road. And I think it's a good way to look at it. It's the second Emmanuel that we're more interested in. So if God is with us, what does that mean? Why is this important? The New Testament is filled with all kinds of references that tell us that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. There are many here. Listen, as Paul writes several of these to the church in Rome, Paul said, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. To the church in Corinth, he wrote, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. To the church in Galatia, Paul wrote, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ that lives in me. And then to the church in Philippi, he wrote, Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything that we can understand. His, his peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ. To the church in Colossae, Paul wrote, For God wanted them to know that the riches and the glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Now here it is, Paul says, Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. And again to the church in Colossae, he writes, In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free or from Mulberry Grove. Just seeing if you're listening. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Now, I understand this theologically. I mean, I, I, I know how this is written and what the language says and how I'm supposed to believe. But the fact is true that for every believer, for every Christian, there is assurances that are given not only by what Paul has said, but also what the prophet Isaiah said 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. There are assurances that we have. Assurance of Assurances over things doubted, over, over the depth of his love. Assurance about the hope that is eternal. And that's what I want to look at this morning as we remember the, the birth story of Jesus, the assurance that we have because of Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that you direct us this morning. Help us as we understand the promises that you have for us. And Father, how real, how valid, how confident we can be in those promises. You have always kept your word and you will continue to do so. Father, let us have hope in that. Let us have confidence in that. Let us be assured of the future because of what you have promised. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ in us, we are living in Jesus. And because of that, we are assured of our redemption. One of the things that's really true and great about Christmas season is that it's a time of gift giving. And one of the things that's given a lot are gift cards. You've either received them or given them. And gift cards are great, aren't they? I mean, they really are. You can take it to, to Walmart and to Buckeyes and to Coles and, and, and you can go to DQ and Scooters and Lou Bob's and, and, and you can get whatever that, that gift card represents. It represents a monetary value. It's been purchased with cash and you redeem it for goods. 
Go to Scooters and get coffee. Go to Dairy Queen and get ice cream. Go, go someplace where you, you've got that card and you can trade it in. How many of you remember S&H green stamps? All of you over 90 will remember those. Yeah, S&H green stamps. I came across an article not long ago, and a lady is writing about S&H green stamps. She said, my grandmother was the queen of S&H green stamp hoarding. She'd amass thousands of sheets of the little green demons and store them in paper bags. When we would visit, she would have a stamp gluing party, something I dreaded nearly as much as the deer lung soup my father made during hunting season. Now, she writes, retailers no longer reward purchases with stamps, but the redemption program still exists in the form of green points. Amazon, Home Depot, uh, Macy's award points on qualifying purchases. And if you're a pack rat with boxes of green stamps tucked away in your attic, here's good news. You can trade them in for cash or fondue pot or other stuff. So, the cash value of 1,200 s green stamps is a whopping $1.20. <laughs> Good luck if you've got a billion of those. Yeah. I enjoy redeeming these things, don't you? I mean, we do this because we think we're getting something for nothing. I didn't pay for it. The card was given to me as a gift. It didn't cost me anything, and I can take this and go get something for that. The truth is, all redemption costs somebody something. That gift card that you've got cost whoever gave it to you some money. Whether it's up front or, or in the back, no matter how it works, that redemption card came at a cost. Someone had to purchase that. There's a great story in the fifth chapter of the book of Mark that talks about redemption, about something being redeemed. It's a story about Jesus meeting a man who is filled with demons Jesus sails to the southern region of the Sea of Galilee. It's, it's a heavily populated area with Hellenistic Gentiles. They do not share the Jews' following of dietary laws, and, and they're pig farmers. So it was a big thing for Jesus to cross these cultural barriers to go into this population and to share the good news about redemption and about eternal life and the blessings that he brought to them. This demonic man was a problem in the area. He had been banished. No one wanted anything to do with him. He had a family, but the family kind of wrote him off, kind of like that crazy uncle you've got out there someplace. He had been shackled, but he was supernaturally strong. He broke every iron, every chain they put on his feet or on his hands. He lived naked among the dead. He, he lived in the tombs outside of the city. Everybody was afraid of him. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus gets off the boat, there's no indication that he went looking for the guy. This guy comes looking for Jesus. Listen to the stories we pick up in Mark 5. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. With a shriek, can you imagine how blood-curdling that would be? He screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. See, he recognized who Jesus was. Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus demanded, what's your name? He replied, my name is Legion. Hundreds, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. Well, that distant place was a place of torture. They didn't want to go there. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into the pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus 
gave them leave, gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man and entered into the pigs. And the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. Some translations say that the pigs flew down the hillside. Well, this is the first indication of swine flu. It doesn't get any better. Now, this is not some Hollywood exorcism that you would see on TV. This man had been living in a cemetery. He was cutting himself. He was unable to be constrained. Demon possession was very, very real and is still very real. He lived a self-destructive, shameful life. He wasn't trusted by family, by community, by friends, no one. There was no, get this, there was no resemblance in this man of what God had created him to be. He didn't look anything like what God had wanted him to be. He was captive of an evil world. But listen, so were we before Jesus. So were we. You probably weren't or have not been demon-possessed, but there's other ways to be held captive. Some are held captive by addictions, they can be chemical, they can be physical, they can be emotional. Some of us have been chained to greed or to pride or to anger or to lust or to fear or to jealousy. Some people are imprisoned by pornography. Some of us even are imprisoned by a sense of self-righteousness. Some of you thought, I'll never break free. I'll always be captive. Some of you still are. But hear this. There is no power too strong from which God cannot bring freedom. There is, there is no addiction too powerful from which God cannot break you free. There is no captivity from which Jesus cannot release you. There is nothing there that is stronger than the power of Jesus Christ. Paul said to the church in Ephesus, in him, in Christ, we have redemption. We've been bought through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That is our redemption. Through Jesus Christ and his blood, we have been redeemed. We have been freed. We've been bought. We've been traded in. Our sins have been taken away, and we've been given a new life. No matter what it is, Jesus can release you from any captivity that has a hold of you, especially those that lead to sin and death. But look, we don't stop at just redemption, because along with redemption comes restoration. Restoration. In Mark 5, we pick up with verse 14. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. People rushed out to see what had happened, and a crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully, fully clothed, perfectly sane. They were all afraid. Can you imagine the reaction of some of the people in the crowd when they saw this guy? Hey, hey, where's that crazy guy? Well, that's, that's him sitting over in the brown robe. No, 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 no. That, that guy, he, he's perfectly sane. He's fine. No, where's that wild guy that was here? But there he sat, fully clothed, perfectly sane in his right mind. That soul, once tormented, is now at rest. The shame of exposure, the shame of nakedness is now gone. You see, Jesus came not only to redeem, but also to restore, to bring back to its original place. How many of you have ever seen the show American Restoration? You know that show, it's on History Channel. Rick Dale takes an old piece of junk, restores it to new condition. Maybe a soda machine, maybe a video game, maybe a, 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 a gas pump or a vending machine, some kind of toy. He totally takes it apart, piece by piece. 
files, cleans, paints, lubes, reconditions, remanufactures, puts it all back together again so it is like brand new and now it's his, it has been restored and its value has just greatly increased. Jesus restores your life. You are created in the image of God. And Jesus is able to restore God's image in you to make you who God had made you to be. But there was a high price that was paid for our sin. And Jesus paid it so that we could be overhauled and repaired. Our redemption book, not an S&H stamp book, but our redemption book runs red with the blood of Christ. The redemption center is not in some building downtown, but it is on a hill called Calvary. And the reward is not a toaster or fondue pot, but it's eternal life. If your soul is destroyed, if you feel like you have nowhere to go, if you are in need of restoration and redemption, come to Jesus today and let him change you. When we are in Christ, not only are we redeemed, not only are we restored, but we also are given that assurance, that assurance of his love and his sacrifice. The dominant theme of the New Testament is Jesus came into this world, he grew, he lived, he loved, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and now he's at the right hand of his Father God in heaven. It's a story of unconditional love in the midst of extreme sacrifice. And, and I think that we know that unconditional love often has or is often defined by a sacrificial act. You might be familiar with a story by O. Henry written in 1905 called The Gift of the Magi. Some of you may, you may know that story. The story takes place in the beginning of the 1900s, that change in centuries. Jim and Della Young live in a small apartment. They pay $8 a week for that, and they are dirt poor. Hardly have a penny to their name, but they love each other intensely. The storyline picks up like this. Three times Della counted it, $1.87. Tomorrow would be Christmas Day, and all she had was a buck eighty-seven with which to buy Jim a present. She had been saving every penny that she, could, that she could for months. With this result, $20 a week just doesn't go very far. And maybe, maybe you know what that's like. Limited resources, great affection. What do I do? Now, there were two possessions of the James Dillingham Youngs in which they both took a mighty pride. One was Jim's gold watch. It had been his father's and his grandfather's. The other was Della's hair. Now, had the Queen of Sheba lived in the flat across the air shaft, Della would have let her hair hang out the window some days to dry just to deprecate Her Majesty's jewels and gifts. So what do you do? Della arrives at a solution to the problem. She goes to uh, Madame Sophroni's hair goods of all kinds, and she sells her hair. Her hair came down to just below her waist, and she sold her hair for $20, a king's ransom in those days. And then she begins to search for Jim's present. She found it at last. It surely had been made for Jim and no one else. There was no other like it in any of the stores. And she had turned them all inside out. It was a platinum fob chain, simple and chaste in design. Properly proclaiming its value by substance alone and not by meretricious ornamentation. As all good things should do, it was even worthy of the watch. When Della reached home, her intoxication gave way to a little prudence and reason. She got out her curling irons and lighted the gas and went to work repairing the ravages made by generosity added to love. 
which is always a tremendous task, dear friends, a mammoth task. Della prepared the apartment for Jim's arrival. She got the table set, put the silverware out, got the pots on the stove ready to cook supper. Waiting in anticipation for how her husband would react when he would see her for the first time without her long hair. When he came in, you can imagine the surprise on his face. Della said, I'm still me. It'll grow back, she reminded him. And in that moment, Jim took out of his pocket, out of his coat, a small package, and he laid it on the table in front of Della, which would explain the reason for his speechlessness. The story says, For there lay the combs, the set of combs side and back that Della had worshipped long in a Broadway window. Beautiful combs, pure tortoise shell with jeweled rims. Just the shade to wear in the beautiful vanished hair. They were expensive combs, she knew. And her heart had simply craved and yearned over them without the least hope of possession. And now they were hers, but the stresses that should have adorned the, covet, the coveted adornments were gone. But she hugged them, and at length she was able to look up with dim eyes and a smile and say, My hair grows so fast, Jim. And then Della leaped up like a singed cat and cried, Oh, oh, Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with a reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on the chain. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands behind his back and, and he smiled. Dell, said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at present. Besides, I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. Genuine love often requires sacrifice. But it's, our needs are not met because a watch has been sold or hair has been cut. The writer to the Hebrews said, Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made, for Jesus to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer as a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. You see, folks, this is the reason for the incarnation. This is the reason that Jesus came to this earth, so that he could understand our life, live the life the way that we live it. Jesus experienced our temptations, our frustrations, our joys, our victories, our losses, our hurts. But it was our sin that separated us from God, and therefore that separation required a perfect sacrifice, one that, that we could not make, one that we could not manufacture, one that we could not do. It required something beyond us. The sacrifice of the Son of God was based on love and grace. And the Apostle John said, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. You see, Christ enough assures us of the depth of his sacrifice and his love. It assures us uh, of our redemption, our restoration, but it also assures us of sharing in the glory of God, the glory of Jesus. Hope is a powerful commodity this time of year, isn't it? It really is. 
It springs eternal as kids go to the tree and they begin to pull out the presents and unwrap them, hoping that what they want is underneath that tree. I'm so much reminded of uh, little Ralphie when he has hoped all through the show of the Christmas story for that BB gun. And finally, there it is. He, he unwraps it and his hopes have been fulfilled. His dreams have been met. He got the BB gun that he always wanted. But when the Son of God lives in us, that which we hope for is far greater than any earthly, earthly gift. To the church in Colossae, Paul said, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What is the mystery? The mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Notice these two phrases are attached. Christ in you leads to a hope of glory. Christ in you assures us of that which we look forward to coming true, the hope of glory, the hope of eternal life in heaven. If you are a believer this morning, Christ lives in you and you can have every confidence in the life to come. This is why Paul told the church in Rome, there is nothing that can separate us from his love. We have confidence in that. But if you don't have that assurance, if you don't have that belief, if Jesus is not yours, you can have that this morning. You can find out all about what it means to have a hope that never fades, a hope that never fails, a hope that never disappoints us. There's no one in this room who has sinned too much, who have walked too far, who is too far gone for God's power to save them. Paul told Titus, the grace of God has been revealed. It brings salvation to all people. We are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom and righteousness and devotion to God while we look forward to that wonderful day, that wonderful day with hope when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. Emmanuel, God is with us. And he lives in us through his son Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit taking up residence in our lives and our hearts. Now, what that looked like to those in the Old Testament and those in the New Testament is decidedly different for us today. We don't see Jesus with our eyes and we cannot reach out and touch the hem of his garment and we cannot come around him and listen to his teachings directly from his mouth. We can't do that. But we experience his presence every day in our lives. Every day in the life of the believer, Christ lives in us. This past week, I spoke to the kids down in preschool. All the staff does this through the course of the year. And so this past Wednesday was my turn at 9 and, and 1, 1.30. So I went downstairs, and we, are all, we were all given a text to, to use and a letter from the alphabet. And my text was out of Hebrews 13, and my letter was in. And in that text, the writer to the Hebrews says that God will never forsake us. He never leaves us alone. And so I'm trying to get the kids to understand that God knows us so well. He will never leave you, never forsake you. God knows all of your fears and your wants and your needs and all these things. I said, God knows you so well. He knows every hair on your head. So you can see where this is going. And I asked the kids, how many hairs do I have on my head? And there was silence for a moment. Then Avery Cummings, who is always willing to answer a question, Stands up and she points to me and said, 11, no, 7, no, 4, 0. <laughs> yeah, she finally got there. By knowing us, by knowing us means that he will never leave us. God knows you. And again, he knows your fears and your triumphs. He knows your victories and your defeats. He knows everything about you. I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. 
it is so easy at this time of year to have our focus only on this baby in the cradle. And rightly so, because that is a wonderful, wonderful picture of God infiltrating our lives in humanity. But from that cradle, we move to an adult who taught and lived and loved and shared and gave and sacrificed, was crucified on a cross to take away the sins of all mankind. He was buried in a tomb, but across the, uh, across the mouth of that tomb was the power of God rolling that stone away and raising Jesus from the dead. And it's by his resurrection that we have victory over sin and death. Christ came to live in us, to assure us of our redemption, to let us know that we can be restored, to show to us the power of his sacrifice, and to let us know that we can have a hope that never fails, fades, or disappoints. If you have that this morning, praise God, and I hope that you hold on to that. If you don't, then you have an opportunity this morning to come and to confess the name of Jesus Christ, to, to believe on him, to receive him as your Lord and Savior, to surrender yourself to, to his, his leadership in your life, and to know what it is to be able to look to not just today, but tomorrow and eternity with real hope. Would you stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the grace that you give to us through your son Jesus Christ, for the for the assurance that we have of the future. Father, we, we don't know what's going to happen later today, tomorrow or next week, and we make plans to do these things, but Father, um, our assurance is, is not in what is happening in this world, but what you have already promised that you will do. Thank you for the power of that promise. Thank you for the strength of that assuredness. Father, I pray that this morning if there is a person here today that has not yet accepted you as Lord and Savior, who's not surrendered to the, to the Lordship of you in their life, they would do so, so that, in, so that in that way, Father, you may bring to them eternal life. Thank you for the gift of grace that you give. May you be glorified in all that we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>